The medical information communicated in this podcast is of a general educational nature. If you are feeling unwell, please seek the attention of a medical practitioner. Any advertisements promoted throughout the podcast are not endorsed by the presenter or any of the guests interviewed. Hi there, welcome to MediTalk, a medical podcast talking all things medical in a way that you can understand. You're with Danae. Ovarian cancer is a type of cancer that affects either one or both of your ovaries. Sadly, in 2019, approximately 1,600 Australian women are expected to be diagnosed with ovarian cancer. So today on MediTalk, we speak with Stuart Selfinger, who is a gynaecologic oncologist to talk about ovarian cancer. Dr. Selfinger has a clinical subspecialization in laparoscopic management of gynaecologic cancers. How many Australian women are suffering from ovarian cancer or might be diagnosed with ovarian cancer? So it's probably just over 1,500 cases uh, per year um, in 2019 um, that we're expecting to be diagnosed with, uh, with ovarian malignancy. So it's around about 2% of uh, new cancer diagnoses in women. And is it increasing? Is it ovarian cancer a, a cancer that's sort of unfortunately trending upwards? Or No, it's probably a, a small increase, but reasonably stable um, over time. Okay. And is there women at more greater risk of suffering ovarian cancer in their life? Um, I guess uh, sort of a genetic predisposition is probably the biggest thing uh, from that point of view as far as an easily identifiable risk feature. Um, Although other things do come into play as well, uh, such as um, nulliparity. So not having any children does increase your risk. Um, By the same token, having children and breastfeeding uh, decrease your risk, um, as does uh, use of the oral contraceptive pill that halves your risk of ovarian cancer. Really? Mm. And are there warning signs that we might get as women that we should be sort of keeping our eye out yeah, for? Yeah, that's, that's, I guess, probably the most difficult thing with uh, ovarian cancer um, because if you think about it, the female pelvis is designed to fit a baby inside. Mm. Um, and so things can grow to a fair size before you get any symptoms because a mass on the ovary will just sort of blob out the way. A lot of women get sort of vague and nonspecific symptoms, so bladder or bowel symptoms, uh, a bit of abdominal bloating maybe all all that they um, they suffer from. Um, so what that means is that ma- the majority of women that we see with ovarian cancer unfortunately present with quite advanced disease. Oh, that is sad. And so is that quite typical then of the patients that you would see in your clinic? They've perhaps had a cancer growing for a long time mm. before they may see you? Yeah, it, it is. And uh, I mean, we often see patients that have seen one or two GPs or have presented to their GP on a number of occasions with symptoms. And because they don't make you actually think about the ovaries, because they're not sort of specific uh, to, the, to the ovaries themselves, people don't think about them. So disease is recognised late. So that's sort of the normal situation. And unfortunately, that means that around about three quarters of women who present to us with ovarian cancer uh, present with stage three or four disease. So that's advanced disease outside the pelvis. Mm. Um, and that has around about a 30 to 40% five-year survival rate. So they present late with advanced disease and they don't do as well. So if a woman is getting some sort of symptoms like bloating and they feel like they're not 
um, getting answers and it's persisting, mm. what would be your advice then? Should they then maybe see a specialist? And, or Look, what's your thoughts on that? I mean, your GP is really your best first yes. line to investigate uh, things. And... Um, and it's investigating those persistent symptoms over time rather than the one-of things here or there. Um, because especially when we talk about those symptoms, the majority of people will get those symptoms at some stage. Mm. Um, but obviously the majority of people don't have ovarian cancer. Yeah. Um, but it's when you get persistent symptoms like that, just asking your GP, should we be doing an ultrasound here? Should we be looking at some blood tests to investigate symptoms? I suppose the word that I'd like to pick up on is persistent Exactly, yeah. Yeah. So what would that time be, sort of over a month or something that yeah, you think is not going over away? over a period of months, yeah. Yeah, okay. Mm. And so how is then ovarian cancer diagnosed? So generally the first line investigations most GPs will organise is an ultrasound scan of the pelvis, mm -hmm. um, which gives, gives us, is probably the best way to look at the ovaries, gives us very good information about the ovaries. And then there's a, a few blood tests um, that we do, which are ovarian tumour markers. Um, the most well-known is the CA125 blood test, mm -hmm. um, which most people will or potentially will have heard about. Um, but unfortunately, even these aren't really particularly sensitive or specific to ovarian cancer. So, And if you look at the CA125, probably around about 50% of women with stage 1 disease, so early stage disease, that we can actually treat very well, um, but half of those women will have a normal CA125. And then by the same token, uh, your CA125 will go up if you have endometriosis, benign cysts, fibroids, uh, if you're ovulating, if you're menstruating. Mm. Um, so there's a whole number of benign conditions which will put your CA125 up as well. Ugh. And But is ultrasound quite more sensitive then? It's, uh, I guess, when we're assessing a woman with symptoms, uh, the combination of ultrasound and a blood test are uh, uh, are probably the best first best. line. Okay. And what are the current treatment options then once you've perhaps been diagnosed with ovarian cancer that are out there? For management of ovarian cancer, it's always recommended that women are sent to a gynaecologic oncologist, so someone yes. who specifically deals with gynaecologic cancers. So if there's a high degree of suspicion, and we ask the GPs to use what we call a risk of malignancy index to sort of triage how concerning mm. uh, any ovarian mass is. So for higher risk uh, masses, they should be referred to either a gynaecologist or a centre that specifically deals with gynaecologic cancers. The pathways forward from there really depend on the stage of the disease and it'll almost always involve surgery and chemotherapy. And I guess depending on the exact spread of disease that women present with, it may be that we either do surgery first and that's then followed up by chemotherapy after that. Or in some circumstances, if we find that by assessing the disease preoperatively, we think we're not going to be able to do as good a job as we can surgically. Sometimes what we'll do in those women is we'll give them chemotherapy to start with to shrink the tumour down, to turn it into something that we can actually do a better operation for. Okay. And is ovarian cancer an age-specific? I've done a few podcasts now where the, the risk increases as we get older. Is, is ovarian mm. cancer like that? 
It certainly is. The, the ovarian cancer that's the most common one certainly is, uh, is a disease predominantly of postmenopausal women. It really peaks in the age range of around about 65 to 75. Um, we do get younger patients uh, that have ovarian carcinoma. Often they, they're the ones that we look a little bit harder for a genetic predisposition. Um, there's some unusual types of ovarian cancer which can present in very young women, um, but that's a very different type of disease to what most of us uh, talk about when we're talking about ovarian, ovarian cancer. cancer. And so what part then does genetics and family history play in ovarian cancer? So I think we mentioned before around about 20% uh, has a genetic basis. Um, Unfortunately, we probably only know about half of those mutations. So around about 10% of women with uh, an ovarian carcinoma will be able to diagnose or actually identify a specific genetic mutation. Um, the two most common ones that people have probably heard about are the BRCA1 and BRCA2 gene mutations. And then there's also the HNPCC gene mutation, which is hereditary non-polyposis colon cancer. Oh, goodness. <laughs> That's quite a big name, but yeah. Most people prefer to just call it Lynch syndrome. It's a little easier. Yes. Um, and, but those women also have a, an increased risk of ovarian cancer as well. There's also then beyond that um, sort of a number of obvious familial clusters of disease um, that we see. And often there'll be a very, very strong family history and you know that there must be a mutation there in that family. Mm. It's just, we just don't have the technology yet to actually identify all of those mutations and find them. Uh, but uh, genetics is in particular in ovarian cancer is a rapidly expanding area and where we know more and more about the genetics of this disease uh, every single year, our, our knowledge is improving. So if you are a person that's got ovarian cancer in your family, what would be your advice, you know, for a young woman who's mm. sort of in their 30s, 40s, 50s, who knows that they've had a family member yeah. have this disease? So I guess it's having a chat with uh, with probably the person who's been affected by the disease. Um, mm. We actually offer, in Western Australia, we offer all women with a high-grade serous ovarian carcinoma genetic testing. So if there's a reasonable chance of it being genetic, they will have been referred for genetic testing. Um, beyond that, or when we get inconclusive genetic testing results, then it's a matter of uh, having a, a chat specifically about your own personal situation and either speaking with a geneticist or a gynecologist or gynecologic oncologist who's specifically trained in that area, who can go through all the the, um, the risk-related features, look at your family history and go through the different options that are available to you. Um, unfortunately, with ovarian cancer, unlike cervical cancer, there is no screening test. Um, mm. So there's nothing at the moment that we can do for asymptomatic women to actually screen them for ovarian cancer because, as we mentioned before, the tests are just not really accurate, especially when we start looking at women who had no symptoms at all. And how much closer are we to that changing, sort of having a screening tool? Or Look, it, it's, um, it's one of those things that's always a, a headline-grabbing mm. uh, uh, thing as soon as someone comes out with a new potential test. Um, and there was a big trial that came out last year that offered possibly a little bit of hope, but even still, when we look at these tests, none of them have been looked at in wholesale um, screening of an asymptomatic population mm. um, to show any survival benefit. And certainly when we start looking at women at higher risk, uh, someone with a genetic predisposition, then sort of there's some very set guidelines that we can look at for those women. Yeah. And have you got a patient story you could share with us? 
I guess there's uh, there's a couple of different uh, things that we can look at. So I might tell you about two patients if yeah. that's okay. So um, the first one was a, a woman who um, at her at her fiftieth birthday it was about a week after her fiftieth birthday that she was diagnosed. And she'd actually given a speech at her 50th where she was talking about the fact she'd had a couple of close friends with diagnosed with breast carcinoma recently and how lucky she felt. And sort of mm. a week later, she actually felt a lump in her neck. Mm. Um, so it was an enlarged lymph node in her neck. And that was the first sign that she had that she had ovarian cancer. Mm. Um, so she had what we'd call stage four disease. So that's disease that's spread outside the abdomen. So distant metastatic disease. And she had some chemotherapy to start with and then, uh, and then surgery after that. And she had initially a, a very good response, um, but then she probably passed away about two and a half, three years um, mm. after her diagnosis, which is, um, I guess, what, what we see with, uh, with the majority of patients with that stage of disease. Um, and what prompted her to then, was it the fact that the lymph node had been enlarged that prompted yeah, her was, to go and see a GP? Yeah, fe feeling that lump and... Um, and yeah. Uh, having that further investigated. Yeah. Um, by the same token, we also have some very good stories. So yeah. um, I've got a patient that I've been seeing since uh, 2008, which was when I first got back to Perth um, yeah. after finishing all my training. And she has she was diagnosed with stage uh, 3C ovarian carcinoma back then. Um, she's had... Uh, three lots of surgery now so um so she had her initial surgery followed by chemotherapy and then she had two recurrences both of which we've managed surgically and she's sort of over 10 years down the track now wow. um after having very advanced disease and still doing very very well yeah um so it's uh, it really is whilst we have all these numbers and statistics yeah. around ovarian carcinoma and the, to be honest, the numbers and the statistics aren't very good um, overall, but it's really the individual patient's response to their combination Therapy. of treatment um, and how they do. Uh, and it's it's you just can't can't follow the statistics. You need to um, throw everything that you've got at it. Yes, um, of course. Yeah. And certainly, when we look at things in Western Australia in particular, um, so there was just a recent um, publication in uh, in the Lancet. Um, which showed so that West Australia in particular, over all of Australia, um, has the second highest ovarian cancer survival in the world. Wow. Um, so our patients here do very well, and that's because of the way we manage them as a team. Um, so we have a very good team with our pathologists, surgeons, the chemotherapy doctors and the radiation doctors who all work together um, to improve outcomes. Yeah. So it's very much a team approach very that's so. making the difference. Yes. What are some things we can do to reduce our risk of ovarian cancer? Um, so, I mean, as we mentioned before, the contraceptive pill does decrease your risk. So the contraceptive pill is, is protective. Um, when it comes down to it, though, ovarian cancer is a rare cancer. Okay, So it's, it's not something that is commonly out there. So when we're looking about a 1.5% lifetime risk of the disease, it's an uncommon disease for women to get. So what we like women to do is focus on the symptoms, being aware of the symptoms that we've discussed, so pain, bloating, uh, disturbance in the bowel and bladder function, um, so these kind of vague symptoms and persistence of those, and then seeking sort of further investigations and management should they have those symptoms that are persistent over time. I mean, I don't know, but I think sometimes we forget, we're sort of, life gets busy and we just don't realise that maybe we've been managing a symptom for quite some time. 
Yeah, it is, it's very true. And and women uh, sort of looking after the family and yeah, everything else around them, yep. and they're probably the worst group for looking after themselves. And it's it's something that I I often see, especially in the lead up to Christmas. Um, yeah. Things go very quiet because women are focused on. Everything else, else and running around after everyone else. And then, unfortunately, usually in the post-Christmas period, we see a bit of a, a rush of cases coming through of women who they've known they've had those symptoms, but they've just been too busy to address them yeah. um, over that period of so time. So mm. important to really make time for yourself, isn't it? It is. And listen to your body. So. Yes. So um, what's, is there sort of an association between ovarian cysts and, and cancer? And why do we get ovarian cysts? Because it's quite common, ovarian cysts. It's, cysts are very common. So, I mean, if you look at the population, about 25 to 7.5% of women will have a cyst um, uh, at some stage that's actually identified. Um, now, you actually do make a cyst every month. It's what comes up and releases the follicle or the egg. Mm -hmm. um, so a woman who's still having a regular menstrual cycle will actually be making a cyst regularly. It's when that cyst looks complex or concerning that we start to worry about it. Certainly in young girls, so prepubescent girls, we worry about um, about cysts or ovarian masses in those women. Mm. And then it's really in the group of, of postmenopausal women that we're more concerned about cysts because they shouldn't be having a, a functional cyst that comes up in the ovary. So you do need to look at those a little bit more closely. And that just means investigating with the ultrasound and, and the tumour markers, as we mentioned. And is there a relationship if, if someone's got a history of, of having an ovarian cyst, is there a relationship to have a, a high risk of getting cancer? Uh, I mean, there's a couple of conditions such as polycystic ovarian syndrome. Yes. So those women do have an increased risk of ovarian malignancy. Um, although, again, it's still a rare disease, even in that cohort of women. Um, there's some people just sort of tend to make cysts. And, oh, is it? Uh, and, and they just do, and you find some women do have lots of problems with cysts. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have a, um, a high risk of ovarian malignancy later on, though. And can you get the cysts removed if you want to? Yeah, so, so, and it again, depends on the degree of uh, complexity and the concerning features uh, on the cysts. So, and it's important to remember the majority of cysts in premenopausal women, so women who are having a regular menstrual mm. cycle, will be functional and they should go away by themselves in time. So if they're monitored with ultrasound scan, you can see that they go away. Um, persistent cysts, cysts that are large or causing symptoms, or cysts that have complex features, so ones that are making us worry about something atypical going on within them, uh, they're the ones that we should be looking at um, removing. Um, removal for the majority of cysts is generally a, a relatively simple laparoscopic or keyhole procedure, um, which probably just means a day stay or an overnight stay in hospital. Um, but again, we need to balance which ones we go in and operate on. Mm. Um, remembering that the vast majority of them will be benign or, or will be either functional, especially in the younger women, and go away by themselves over time so that we're not doing lots of operations on cysts that would otherwise uh, themselves resolve. Hmm. And what's the research that sort of would be good to talk about that um, is quite current in ovarian cancer? Um, the biggest... Uh, areas of research are probably looking at some of the newer agents um, 
other than our standard chemotherapy. Um, so there's new agents looking at um, uh, angiogenesis, so how blood vessels form because a tumour or a cancer needs to generate its own blood supply. Mm. Um, so there's agents looking at that um, and how the, the, they can actually reduce the blood supply to the tumour. And there's also lots of immune agents now. So the majority of our patients here will often be offered a clinical trial. Mm. Um, so as well as their standard treatment, they'll often be offered a, an experimental arm of treatment as well. Um, we certainly encourage patients to go into trials. Um, trials are the only way you really get access to some of the new incoming uh, treatment modalities. Mm. Um, and they are designed such that patients are still getting the standard care, it's just some of them will get something extra as well. And that's the only way we can really um, advance things as far as treatment and, and improving outcomes for women with ovarian cancer. And in other um, types of cancer, um, lifestyle factors such as exercise can be extremely beneficial. Mm -hmm. Is this the same for ovarian cancer or...? It is, and, and we've actually done some research here looking at um, outcomes after cancer treatment. Um, and the unit here at um, St John of God Subiaco has actually um, published several articles on that with regard to uh, activity and improved outcomes in women after treatment of malignancies. Does weight have any factor in ovarian cancer? Uh, probably not, really. Mm. Um, we know weight is a significant risk for endometrial or uterine cancer, mm. um, and that's because the adipose tissue, so the fat tissue, actually produces estrogen, basically, which increases your risk of, uh, of uterine cancer. Mm. Um, that might be something we talk about another day. Yeah, though. true. <laughs> Sounds like a whole other topic, but uh, good to know. And just to end, what are some sort of key messages that you'd like people to know about ovarian cancer that perhaps we, we need to highlight? Um, so I guess it's really being being aware of your body, being aware of the potential symptoms of ovarian malignancy. Um, so those vague, non-specific symptoms, and if you do have those and they do persist over time, to seek help from your GP. Um, a good GP is always your best first point of contact. Um, be persistent if you're not being hurt mm. and um, insist on getting things investigated if, if they're problematic. And also being aware of your family history mm. and things because that could be very helpful for us as well um, for identifying women at risk. Um, and I guess that's where we, we have things focused at the moment is identifying those high-risk women, so women with a genetic predisposition, mm. to then offer them uh, options that are available to them. And what's involved in genetic testing? So if you are one of those people that have got a family history and you, mm. what's involved? Because sometimes people would think, oh, you know, it's nice to know if it, what's involved and less... Um, less fearful of it sometimes. Yeah. So genetic testing, so patients who have genetic testing generally always have some type of pre-test counselling to explain about the test mm. to them and the potential outcomes because a lot of people worry about insurance and other yes. things when they're having genetic testing. Um, the test itself is basically just a blood test. Huh. Um, it's uh, available for all identified high-risk patients within the public sector. Um, it's also become very cheap now to access uh, in the private sector sector in addition to that because there's some women in certain circumstances who have a very high risk family history but may not necessarily fit the strict criteria for high risk. Um, but I guess when it comes down to it, genetic testing gives us information. Mm. Um, it might be helpful in a number of women. So if we do identify a gene in your family, then 
we can actually give you specific advice and pathways uh, for with really regard to risk reduction surgery, so surgical options to reduce your risk of ovarian cancer, um, or other advice uh, with regard to that. Okay, well that sounds really interesting and I appreciate just helping um, put a spotlight on ovarian cancer. It's okay, pleasure. Thank you. A big thank you to Dr Selfinger for sharing his time and knowledge with us today on Meditalk and to learn more about Dr Selfinger, visit sjog.org.au. If you feel this podcast episode can help a friend or a family member, please share as sharing knowledge empowers our lives and the lives of others. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute to write a quick review on Apple Podcasts. To listen to more episodes of Meditalk, visit meditalk.com.au and if you have any medical conditions you would like to learn more about, please send me an email via danae at meditalk.com.au. Stay well and thank you for listening.